0: Welcome to Hope Through Hard Stuff, a podcast from Winning at Home. Please welcome your host, speaker, and award-winning author, Steve Norman. Welcome back to Hope Through Hard Stuff. I'm Steve Norman, and it's my great honor to have as our guest today, Dr. Susan Maros. She's the Affiliate Assistant Professor of Christian Leadership at Fuller Seminary, my alma mater. Uh, She also served as a doctoral supervisor there. She is an adjunct professor at the King's University in Southlake, Texas. She's the past president of the Academy of Religious Leadership and actively serves as the co-chair of the Practical Theology Interest Group for the Society of Pentecostals. Dr. Maros, thank you so much for joining me. Thanks
1: so much for having me.
0: Tell me about your role at Fuller, your leading vocation classes. What, What does that entail for people who've never heard of anything like that before?
1: One of the main classes that I teach, right now it's called Vocational Formation in Seminary. Titles change over time, you know, as, as seminaries do and n- nuance, uh, curriculum, but it, it's a class intended on the front end of a person's studies to help somebody reflect through how God has shaped and formed them, leading them to this moment of beginning graduate education in a seminary, reflecting on the context of their lives, the journey of their lives, the story of their lives. And oftentimes when people are coming in, um, uh, both how they think about vocation, as well as they're, how they're thinking about a seminary education. They're thinking, I'm getting an education to get a job. Like that's a very right. common mental model about education and about seminary sure. formation. I, I'm gonna get this so I can have a job. Um, and they're also thinking about vocation in the sense of, uh, this is about knowing God's call to a specific role or task. That's what, I, I need clarity on the specific role or task that God is calling me to. And. Some of what I'm doing is unpacking that and saying those are common cultural expectations that we read into scripture, but maybe there's more that God is doing that we haven't thought about. And so can we broaden our scope for the sake of recognizing God's fingerprints on our lives, recognizing how God has been shaping and forming us across a lifetime to this moment so that we can have faith for God's continuing shaping and formation across our lifetime going forward.
0: And so what are some of the most important lessons that your students need to unlearn when it comes to vocation and calling when, when, when they arrive in your classroom?
1: Well, One of the things that I really hope to help them unlearn, although I have to be, you know, a little careful about how fast I challenge it, right? Because it's, it's so, it can be very disorienting when you have your assumptions undermined and and unpacked, I try to do so at a pace that students can integrate and manage. But one of them is the assumption that calling is a one-time event, that you get clarity that sets the trajectory for the rest of your life. You know, that that's the one thing that we're all looking for. Or, Or alternatively, that calling is one thing you know, so so it may not, what I just described, you know, this notion of somehow you have this moment of clarity that you now know what your call is for the rest of your life. Maybe the mental model that people come with isn't exactly that, but they come with something. And so unpacking and exploring, you have had assumptions about the nature of calling, what it is, how you experience it, how God is involved, what is the human role versus God's role. There's a lot of assumptions that you have that have been formed in the context you've been in, they may be just fine, or maybe we need to challenge them. And it's not that I have, okay, this is the correct way to think about vocation and you need to replace your incorrect version with my correct version. It's we need to develop the capacity to be self-reflective and self-aware and to be aware of the ways in which our context has shaped the assumptions through that become then the lenses through which we interpret our next set of experiences. Because maybe God's doing something else or more or different, or God's been at work and you just, you feel like God hasn't because you're looking through a box that says, God, you know, vocation's only this, and you don't, you're not able to see everything outside the box that that God has been doing. So maybe we need to challenge the box.
0: Susan, how has that played out in your life? Have you, as you've looked at kind of the arc of your ministry and contribution to, the, to kind of kingdom work, how has that box stretched or shattered for you?
1: Well, specifically about vocation in a variety of ways. Um, and, and they're very much reflected then in what I wrote in the book. So things like, I, I told briefly a story in the book of when I was working on my doctoral research, which um, to back up just a little bit, I had been working for a lot of years with adult learners. So these are people in their 20s, 30s, 40s, 50s, a lot of them already in ministry, a number of them already pastors, uh, a number of them significant lay leaders in their community or their church. And I was working with them on the idea of leader development and how that happens over a lifetime. And and I kept running into this issue about calling that people were so anxious, you know, what's my call, what's my call? And particularly with people that I knew well enough to know, I, I see you in ministry, I see gifting, I see anointing, I was in a Pentecostal context. So anointing is its own, you know, distinctive thing. I see anointing, you know, I see good fruit coming from your life. And yet you're anxious about calling what in the world's going on. So that that's what prompted me to research calling as the focus of my doctoral work. And in the midst of that, as I was reading, 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 reading all these books about vocation, you know, lots and lots and lots of books have been published in the U.S. about vocation. I was talking to my Malaysian colleague, Supik Lim, and verbally processing everything I was reading. And she made this offhand comment of, yeah, I don't really like to read vocation books written in the United States. You know, they're just too American. And it stopped me in my tracks. You know, so it's kind like, wait, wait, I thought vocation is biblical. I thought we're talking, when we're talking about calling, we're talking about biblical thing. What do you mean to American? You know, and so that's an example of, I came to the subject matter having been shaped by my contacts to make some assumptions about what the nature of, of calling and vocation are. And I do use those terms interchangeably, which is one of the things I I, I mentioned in the book and is a little bit different. I I recognize that for some people, those two terms mean different things, but I I tend to use them interchangeably. And, um, you know, as I'm looking at the literature, I'm, I'm bringing these culturally shaped assumptions, and it took my colleague's comment to sort of, oh, do I have, I have assumptions? I didn't realize I had assumptions. I just I thought I was thinking biblically. I thought I was thinking about what God does. So that's an example. Another example is uh, how thinking about racial, ethnic, cultural identity came to really influence how I think about vocation, and that's that's partly reflected in the book as well. You know, and realizing more broadly, oh, social vocation is actually really important. It it shapes the the ways, the things we assume to be true about the world, and what we assume to be normative human experience, are shaped in a particular context, and it reflects what we've experienced in that context. Oh, this is shaping how we read scripture, this is shaping how we discern God at work in our lives. And that was disorienting, at one level, for me, for sure. And it's like, specifically on racial, cult, ethnic, cultural identity, you know, I had to an extended period of time where I just had to really process, okay, what does it mean that I'm white? And what does that have to do with my calling? And, and I I had to wrestle with that and and become disoriented and then, and then put it all back together again. And I I experienced that a lot with other people who look at the the subtitle of the book, you know, Social Location and Vocational Formation. They're like, what does social location have to do with vocation? Like, Glad you asked. You know, that's part of the process of that for me was, was, was a a point of disorientation until I could process through and see, oh, there's something more about God's work in the world that I hadn't, it was always there. I just hadn't seen it.
0: That's super helpful, Susan. And my apologies, I forgot to give the title of the book for our listeners. It's Calling in Context. You mentioned the subtitle, Social Location and Vocational Formation. And the title alone is helpful because I think that many of us have been led to believe that calling happens in a vacuum. Like I'm just this kind of point existing in the universe and God shines his light on me and I get clarity about what my job is. And then I kind of charge boldly forward. And one of the principles that I appreciated in the book was beginning to understand the communal nature of calling or discerning. Mm -hmm calling within a community rather than kind of solely doing it as an individual and i grew up in suburban chicago i'm i'm an I, i'm white as well i had college educated parents and the my assumption was hey i choose my own de- i choose my own yep. adventure i choose yep. where i go to college and i choose where i go to grad school and i choose where i'm going to have my first job and i do all of those things maybe with the input of some trusted advisors but part and parcel lar- largely i do it on my own and for us to be able to say there, there are some parts of that that are healthy, but there are some downsides to that as well. And yeah. when we read scripture through a, a, an Eastern or Southern perspective, we say, oh, it, 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 there are ha- fierce communal elements to this. How, how are you helping your, your readers and students understand why community matters in discerning issues of vocation?
1: Well, there are a couple levels of that. And and as well as that's still in process for me, you know, what what I have to say about community in the book is what I can say at this moment in time, you know, check back with me in 10 years, I'll, I'll I'll probably have something else to say about the nature of community, particularly because students, I've used the book in my classroom, or I use drafts of the chapters, you know, some of some of what's there, I, I dedicated the book to my students, my most faithful teachers, in part, because of the really helpful engagement the students had with it as they interacted with early versions of the chapters. And one of the questions I would get a lot is, okay, so if calling is communal, what does that mean? And how do we work on that some more? And what else can we read? And, and in part, my answer was, I don't know. Uh, I'm still working on that too. You know, it's like, so if calling is communal, what does that look like? It's like, good question. Let's talk about that. You know, let, let's explore that. You know, what would that look like? Um, so in a sense, I have a partial answer. You know, part of it is, is aware that culturally, US Americans are way at the end of the individualist scale of things. Meaning, not, not that we're self-centered, well, some of us, I mean, okay, yeah. But that's not what I mean. What I mean by individualistic is that we assume that the individual is the building block of society. Right. So groups for us, by and large, are collections of individuals. Instead of a collectivist perspective that says that identity comes first and foremost from being part of a group. So like one of the one of the popular terms that that people like to float around uh, is the term Ubuntu. You know, I am because we are. Yeah. And 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 so that's a collectivist phrase uh, that we'd like to appropriate and, you know, kind of use in our individualistic ways, but so so that's part of it, is that there's a cultural dynamic of this, of recognizing we have very individualistic ways of thinking about calling because we live in an individualistic context. Part of it though, Steve, is also, when I look at scripture, calling of an individual is always within the context of the larger group. It's always about what God is doing in Israel, what God is doing in the body of Christ. And the individual is called for the sake of participating in what God is doing in the group. And God is calling the group. So so God created Israel. God called Israel to demonstrate God's character to the world, to be a kingdom of priests and prophets to the world. Right. So, So there's a collective calling that the individual callings, facilitate, you know, so the individual has a place in the larger calling. And all of what that means, I can't, I don't know, you know, so I, i I'm still wrestling with that, you know, cause I am also US American. I've also been shaped by individualistic perspectives. And I think that way too, but it does make me stop and think, what would it mean for my, my church? What does it mean if we are together a community of people that God has called as a community? to be and do something to participate with god's work in our city our neighborhoods our workplaces you know there's something about us together right and and what would that mean to think about calling like that and not just what am i supposed to do with my life but what are we together supposed to be in the world
0: and i love i love that insight and I, i love the argument that you made along those lines in the book i I'm so grateful for stories that we hear like in the book of acts where Mm. it says that the community spent days praying and fasting. And then at the end of that time, they decided that they were going to set apart Paul and Barnabas or Paul and Silas for particular work that not only was the calling discerned in community, but when people were sent, they were also sent in community and not as individuals.
1: Yeah. Yeah.
0: And I think that sometimes that's something that gets lost along the way. Now, I really love the way that you used examples in the book, both contemporary examples from friends and mentors and students, but then also biblical examples. So talk a little bit about how calling can evolve over time. You say that sometimes we're tempted to try to, to microwave the discernment process, yep. and sometimes God uh, uh, reveals it over over months, if not years or decades.
1: Yeah. yeah. well, you know so to, to use a biblical example, um, Moses is an example I use in the book and an example I talk about, you know, we we focus on the burning bush as if somehow for 80 years, Moses was twiddling his thumbs. There was no call on his life, but then it, it, finally in the desert, there's a burning bush and now he has a call. And right. I would argue that in fact, when we all of Moses's life, so that the 40 years he spends in Pharaoh's household, with whatever training and education he would have gotten Pharaoh's household was part of his equipping. And then the the fact that when he then goes out to see his people and he sees the Egyptian beating the Israelite and kills the Egyptian. And I I believe it was Stephen in his sermon said that, you know, he assumed that the people would understand he was wanting to set them free. Right. Mm -hmm. You Mm -hmm. see that 40 years before the burning bush, Moses is demonstrating he has a sense of purpose. He wants to see his people set free, right? He goes about it the wrong way. Sure. And there's still more stuff that has to develop, but he has a sense of call. And it, it, then he is in the desert for 40 years, which is also great leader training for if you're keeping sheep alive in the backside of the desert for 40 years, you learn a lot sure. about surviving in the desert, which then becomes important when he's keeping Israelites alive in the backside of the desert for 40 years. That's an example, another, uh, another example. Um, Abram, you know, so in Genesis, the beginning of Genesis 12, when God calls Abram out of Ur, the Chaldees said, get up and go to a land that I will show you. How much did Abraham really understand about what God was going to do right in that moment? You know, he didn't know he was going to experience infertility. He didn't know there was going to be a miraculous child. He didn't know which land God was going to give him. He didn't yet know that God was going to speak the promise of descendants as many stars you know if you track the story and pay attention to how old abram and then abraham was at the various events you see that his evolving discernment of god's calling in his life happened over decades so why do we assume for us it's got to be a one and done and why do we then read into those stories as if it's a one and done you know that's our assumption that's shaping the story, instead of recognizing, oh, there was a lot going on that then there were very significant moments where there was some particular revelation of something that God did. But it was, there was an evolving sense and a developing and continually forming sense of, of a person's calling.
0: And. And and not to over dramatize it, but Moses, when the book again, it's called calling in context. Moses' context begins on the day that he's born. Like he's yeah. born to an oppressed people. His peers are being slaughtered and drowned, and his story starts from the margins. Yeah, and yeah. and that that's a thread that God uses over time. And one of the thoughts that I appreciate from reading this book, Susan, is just that God doesn't waste a single experience over the trajectory of our. Uh, uncovering or yeah. unveiling of our our vocation. Yeah. So what do you what do you say to people who are in that first third of the Moses story? Like they've they've grown up in the palace. They have this amazing skill set. They're equipped to lead lots of people at a high level. And there's just not a slot for them to use their gifts. What do you say to the person who's who's frustrated? Like they feel really equipped, but there's not there's not an outlet or a platform for them to use their skills, their knowledge, or their gifting yet. What what do you say to that person?
1: Oh, actually, I probably would listen more than I would say because I, I, there isn't really a simple answer. You know, um, I, I wish there was, <laughs> you know, I, I, I wish. And it can be so frustrating. I can I can relate to that. The frustration of why is there not a door opening? It looks like doors are opening for everybody else. And why is there not a door opening for me? Um, and why not? I I don't know. Uh, is there more inner life formation that needs to happen? Is there okay. God, God's at work in some other arena? Are we underappreciating what is available to us? Um, so it, it's less of a I don't. I, often people, because I study calling and and write about calling, you know, people kind of come to me like, "Okay, you're the guru. Give me the answer." You know, <laughs> that happens so much, and I was like, "Ah, oh, sorry, I really." I recognize there's a whole industry and I'm not um, criticizing folks who write a book saying, okay, here's the answer, because people are so hungry for that and they may have found a strategy that can be helpful for some folks, but I just don't think there's a single answer. Here's the five steps to, to knowing the thing that comes next. And I'm not sure it's encouraging to send them to think about Moses. Well, maybe the next thing is you spend 40 years in the backside of the wilderness. I probably more would listen and ask questions about their sense of where God is working in their lives. Okay. You know, what is, what are you discerning? What is your, what are you yearning after? And where is that coming from? You know, is that the spirit of God at work? Is that maybe something else that's emerging that God in God's grace wants to bring to the surface and heal? Um, yeah there's a part of this where in a sense i need to function more like a spiritual director helping person discern god's fingerprints than than i really can even even when i have an inclination of i think this is what's going on i have to be really cautious about that because we have this desire for somebody to give us answers let's come to a 30 figure and they'll tell us what to do it's like well okay how can i help you perceive what the spirit is doing in you in this moment and witness that with you.
0: Sure, in, in the book, you reference a, an author that's been influential for me as well, uh, Bobby Clinton and different mm-hmm. things that he would call process items, which are kind of right. like ter- turning point moments to help us discern what might be happening next. And one of those process items that he identifies is, is negative preparation, or sometimes mm-hmm. we go through something that makes us really uncomfortable to prepare us for something that feels less painful and God, God leads that way. When you're walking with people in that spiritual direction capacity, how do you help them determine or distinguish between a holy discontent, like maybe a a righteous restlessness, or... Just maybe a season of impatience or pride that God is trying to 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 conform them into the likeness of Christ. Again, I know that's asking a very broad stroke question that has a lot of different answers. But what what are general themes to help us figure out when we're struggling? When is that discontent a gift from God, and when is it maybe something that's happening in the flesh that's a reminder to to submit, surrender, and wait?
1: Yeah, wouldn't that be great to just know how to know that, (laughs) right? Because we want to know, you know, and I think, for me at least, certainly personally, um, and it plays out differently in the classroom because my role is different, right? Sure. You know, students are doing assignments and there's a grade and we have a finite time that we're together. Right. But there is a certain, um, in the classroom, there's an invitation to space. Like I'm trying to create space for that and conversation. and And sometimes maybe a person in that situation... Um, the work that we're doing together will be helpful to them to discern that point. Mm-hmm. And sometimes they'll leave frustrated and I have to really trust that to God. Like I would love to just every one of my classes that every student, it would be transformational, you know, be just, wow, that class changed my life. I would love that. And I also, but I also have to let go of it too, right? That right. God is in process and I might, I might not see the fruit. this process. I'm I'm hoping that I will um, be faithful in my discernment in the moment of what is God asking me, how is God asking me to engage in this space. Uh, So that's a little tricky when it comes to the individual students because of my role. Because I'm not, although I I liken what I do to spiritual direction, I'm not actually a spiritual director, I'm a professor, you know, and has a different role. I would say in my own life, Uh, discerning between holy discontent and my own uh, wrestling and ego and broken places and, you know, points of pain, like how do I discern between those two, for me personally has to do, I have to continually practice quietness and contemplation and silence, listening prayer, like the contemplative practices have become really important to me. Um, which is very different from my Pentecostal, the part of my background that's Pentecostal, you know, because sure. it's like not contemplative, you know, it's 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 shouting, it's 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 bold faith, it's you know, and right. I s- appreciate those also, uh, but but for me, um, if I am restless, like until I get to the point where I can be still mm. and be present to my own emotional state and be present to God's presence in that emotional state, then I haven't really gotten to the bottom of it. I don't yet know is this holy discontent or is this some point of pain or, or um, leftover baggage from other life experiences or ego or which usually, at least for me, pride and ego are the surface veneer, over internal brokenness and so i need to get past that into the okay why does it hurt so much that i don't have that position or that title is that because i'm being moved into being prepared for a position like that or is it because i'm afraid of being unseen and unrecognized Mm -hmm. you know so can i get quiet enough and still enough to be frank honest seeing that clearly in my soul and being able to to sit with that before the lord at least for me that's a very significant process for that point you know, of discernment
0: and i i love that and i receive that i think that some sometimes the reason that i have so much anxiety around calling is because god is using that as a as a vehicle or a lever to drive me into deeper issues of mm. identity and worth mm. and worship and value and mission and purpose. And one of the themes that was just validated in my own life as I read your work is just that very gentle reminder that God says, I care more about who you are becoming than maybe specifically wh- where you land, like yep. who, whose payroll you're on or what, what title is on your business card. Those Obviously, God cares about those and those are important, but God cares more about our formation than he does about maybe the, the, the role or the task that we sit on for a particular season.
1: One of the analogies that, that I think of, you know, so I, I do think God invites us to do stuff, Right, God is at work in the world and God invites us to participate in that as God's children. It's like, you know, God in heirs, you know, the the business of, of God's work. But the analogy I think of sometimes is when my kids were little, um, I, would, I had this particular cake recipe that I really liked because I had two kids and everything in the cake was divisible by two. You know, it had six eggs, it had three cups of flour, it had, you know, whatever. So w- I'd have them bake with me and it was delightful. It was an incredible mess. And you know, the two of them were so cute. And you know, it's like, okay, now you put the cup of flour in, now you put the sure. egg in. It was one of these, anyway, it was, it was this recipe. And I didn't do that because their help was so helpful. Right? I could have more efficiently made the cake if I just made it myself. Right? right? That's a treasured memory because it was just delightful to be baking with my children. And then here's the cake that we made together. And, you know, and and we would decorate it together, which would always result in sprinkles and frosting, you know, covering every inch of the kitchen. Um, It would be a lot less messy if I just did it myself. It would be much more efficient if I just did it myself. God could just do it. And it would be cleaner, more efficient. And sometimes, honestly, I really wish God would. That would just be tidier, but God invites us to participate. It's the relationship. So like with my kids, it's my relationship with my kids and it's my delight in sharing the process with them and my delight in sharing what we produce together because we did it together. Right. So I think there's a there's an element of that relationship between our being and our doing that that God's delight in us is to be with us and for us to be with God. And part of that is doing work, but it's work that comes out of the relationship. Now I knew you know, the phrase, um, ministry flows out of being, like I heard that in my 20s and I thought I understood it. And then I got in my 30s and was like, oh, I totally didn't understand in my 20s, but I understand it now. And then I got into my 40s and I was like, okay, I totally did not understand it in my 30s at all. And, and at least in my own process, God took me this through this extended kind of dark night of the soul, wholly unraveling, because I was so fixated on the doing. And I thought right. I understood that that came out of the being. You know, right. I knew that in principle, I agreed with that theology. But in my in my heart of hearts, in my gut, it, I really, deep, deep down inside of me, I thought it's like the parable of the talents. You know, if I don't produce something, I'm going to be like that one servant that that the king says get away from me you unfaithful person you know you know you right. have to you have to come back with the talents and saying look at what i produced for you you know that's 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 my that was my twisted still is my go-to twisted way of thinking about that parable it, but god is so we express our being in our doing so i don't think it is that we need to go away and contemplate our belly buttons and you know don't do anything you know or sure. becomes self-indulgent or self-absorbed uh, we we do need to live as God's children in the world but it really is out of our our beingness about our belovedness about the human being that God created and is transforming we are are constantly Steve you and I and and, and anyone everyone who's listening God is constantly transforming us to be fully human fully who God has made us to be and some of that happens in the doing but the being really does take precedence
0: and that's why I appreciate your example of Moses, right? Because Moses had, had the right idea and he had some of the skills, but he skipped steps in murdering the Egyptian foreman. Yeah. Uh, he was trying to do the right thing the wrong way. And I, sometimes I read that story. as like, oh, he killed somebody. So God gave him a 40 year timeout. I don't read that that way. Now it's like there were lessons that he needed to learn over the course of decades that he couldn't learn in an instant. And mm-hmm. I think that sometimes we struggle with calling because we try to skip the steps and yeah. say, again, I'm, I have a great old school Pentecostal background as well. And you pray a loud, fast prayer and you get a loud, fast answer. And that's not always how uh, God, God's not compelled to function on our timeline. And you're right. I think that if we can step back and say, God delights in the work that God is doing, God delights in me. There's delight to be found in this season, even though that sometimes is paired with lament. If only I have eyes to see it and hands to receive it. Yeah, Susan, any any last words of encouragement to people who might be feeling overwhelmed, or stuck or anxious about what God is or isn't saying about their vocation in this season of their life?
1: Yeah, I I start the book with Ephesians 2.10, and that's sort of a theme verse, you know, that you are God's workmanship. You are God's masterpiece, which is uh, Eugene Peterson's paraphrase. You are God's masterpiece. That you were created in Christ Jesus for particular works and that the works were created for you. And I, and I end the book with Nehemiah's wall as an analogy. You know, there's a place on the wall. You know, the, Nehemiah chapter 3, from here to here, so-and-so built the wall. And from here to here, this family built the wall. You know, there's a, there's a place on the wall. We are simultaneously living stones being built up into a spiritual house, as well as workers building the wall, to mush my building metaphors together or biblical building metaphors together. So the sense of confusion or frustration or discouragement, longing is never because you've been overlooked or bypassed, ever, ever. There is a place on the wall for you. There is something you will contribute. When we stand in eternity and we look at the, the grand scope of all of God's work across time and space, there will be, oh, look at that bit. That's the bit I contributed, you know. And here's this grand work that God has accomplished we'll see the bits that we contributed that include seasons where God is more interested in the inner formation and and maybe that's what the frustration and the, the longing and the absence and the whatever it is that's going on that doesn't look like I'm not producing anything I'm not moving forward The the way is not opening in front of me it is never because you're overlooked or set aside Or, and it's also never because you made a mistake and now therefore God can't use you. Like, I think we get really worried about that in calling, like, what if I make the wrong choice? You know, like somehow God's going to be in heaven going, oh, no, Steve chose that. I can't, I can't figure out what to do. You know, you are not alone. God is with you. And even if you cannot see or feel or hear God in this moment, God is present with you and will be faithful to complete the work that God has begun.
0: Such good words of blessing and insight and encouragement. Thank you so much, Susan. Again, the book is called Calling in Context, Social Location and Vocational Formation. You can find it wherever you get your books. And I know that you'll be blessed by it in the very same way that I was. So Susan, thanks again for joining us. It's great to have you.
1: It's great. Thanks so much, Steve. Thanks for listening to Hope Through the Hard Stuff. If you liked what you heard, please remember to
0: subscribe to it, rate and review it, and then share it with others. Winning at Home offers hope through counseling and coaching, motivational speaking, community events, and other media resources. If you believe in what we do and want to support us in our mission, consider making a donation at winningathome.com.